2 Corinthians 3, starting at verse 12. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This evening we continue our series uh, looking at discipleship and today in particular thinking about how it is that we become like the Lord Jesus Christ. That becoming like the Lord Jesus Christ is right at the heart of our discipleship. We'll hopefully make that point as we go. How we become like the Lord Jesus Christ. uh, Why we should be like the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope we'll look at that too uh, in our time together. So if you're Corinthians uh, 3. And I want to jump straight in at verse 18 because it's the key. And if you've got your Bibles there, uh, then have a look with me. And we, or we all, who with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. I don't often uh, do this, but I I feel I need to this evening. You'll see a little uh, letter, a little A next to reflect, and you'll see a footnote, which will take you down to the bottom of the uh, page, and you'll see there the A18 and the word there, contemplate. And um, in fact, I think that is by far the better translation um, than reflect, especially given the context of the verses that were read to us a little bit earlier. This is about, uh, Paul's been saying, when, um, uh, when Moses used to see the Lord or when Moses used to read the law, uh, there was something about the state of um, um, God's people back then such that sin veiled what was read. They couldn't see the glory of the Lord. Moses couldn't see him directly, and the people couldn't see the glory of the Lord when the law was read. Their hearts were veiled. But now, says Paul, with the coming of the Holy Spirit, with the coming of Christ and the release of the Spirit, now, he says, we're in a different kettle of fish. We all, as those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ and have his Spirit, our eyes and our hearts have been unveiled such that now when um, the word is preached, when we hear about the Lord Jesus Christ, we are able to contemplate, that is to say, to see his glory. And in seeing his glory, we are transformed into his likeness. So I want to suggest that contemplate is the better reading. The principle, I think, from verse 18 is this. We are transformed by what we most treasure. We're transformed by what we most treasure into the likeness of the thing that we treasure, I should say. We are transformed by what we treasure into its likeness, which is to say that what we fix our eyes on, what we set our hearts on, what we align our minds with, if you like, is profoundly 
shaping, profoundly transforming. Of course, it's, in one sense, it's an obvious point, and we'll see why in a minute. You just need to think about a small child um, uh, whose sort of small W worships their uh, parents, um, and it does tend to be the smaller children. They soon, they soon grow out of that, don't they? But... Um, you know, you see the small child who hangs on, you know, hangs on mum and dad's every word, and you see them, you know, trying to imitate mum as, or dad as they make a you know, cake or a dinner or whatever it is, and they, you know, they've got their little pinny on, and they're trying to do the same thing, or you know, somebody with some tools, and they've got their bag of tools. You know, there's that sense in which, uh, as they look at their parents, and as they, in that age, think that their parents you know, are, are all wonderful, um, uh, they... They, they, they're transformed into their likeness. And that's why, of course, modeling the adult life is so important, such an important part of um, being a parent. Mad- modeling the adult life well is such an important part of being a parent because that's, in a sense, you're wanting to transform them in, into living the adult life. And um, there's a, um, a book that was written a few years ago by a man called Greg Bill, who's a, a theologian. And uh, he was looking at the, um, the Old Testament and he was looking at idolatry and um, I thought you just to remind you is that, that is when we worship created things rather than the creator uh, for the best out of life. And he was looking at the ways in which idolatry worked in the Old Testament as people worshipped various things. And uh, what he noticed was that running all the way through the Bible, there is this principle that what it is that people worship profoundly transformed them as people and as a community. So the title of his book was this, We Become What We Worship. That was the title of his book, We Become What We Worship. And his sort of conclusion was this, what people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or for restoration. What people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. And there are lots of examples. The psalmist uh, talking about uh, those who worship idols of silver and gold, uh, worship idols made by human hands that have eyes but cannot see, ears but cannot hear, goes on to say this, those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Which is not to say that as they worshipped silver and gold statues, they became you know, inanimate. Well, it is to say that. They didn't become silver and gold, but they, they did, in a sense, he, the psalmist sees them becoming increasingly insensitive, increasingly spiritually deadened and socially deadened, which, of course, is a tragedy because we were created to be glorious. You know, I think we sometimes forget that but we were created to be glorious. We were created to shine. I go back to the beginning of the scriptures, Genesis 1 and 2. We were created to image a glorious God. We were created to, uh, to see his glory in the Garden of Eden and be captivated by that glory. Um, you need know, to sort of... To, um, to be overwhelmed by it, to be enthralled by it, um, to be satisfied by it, to be delighted by it. And therefore, to, like a little child with their parent, to, to, to worship God, to, to, to want to imitate him with our lives lived according to his word and his pattern of life. And so, of course, to embody something of his glorious character. Become glorious in that sense. And image him. Seeing God and being satisfied by him and thereby shaped by him is the root 
to human wholeness. It is the route to becoming the glorious glory image reflectors that we were created to be. But you'll know the story. Genesis 3, we chose to look at created things, the fruit of the tree, rather than our creator for our delight, and we've done so ever since. And that sin uh, that leads us to do that, for which we're culpable, it physically separated us from seeing God in the garden, of course. And now, as uh, the the, the verses that were read before our verse uh, this evening, verse 18, it also spiritually veils our eyes and hearts so that we don't see God like we should. And we don't savor him. Even when we catch a glimpse of him, we don't savor him like we should. It doesn't delight us. Our eyes and our hearts are easily captured by created things. And they, they impress themselves upon us. They shape us. We bear their image increasingly. Maybe you can think of an example of that. I was reading somebody in an article in preparation for this, they gave a couple of examples. I'll give them to you, but you might be able to think of, think of others. He was talking about the ways in which you see cultures that worship. Uh, There's an American person, so it's slightly, well, no, it's quite similar to us, talking about worshipping supermodels and celebrity and talking about how, how vain and self-centered such a culture becomes as they sort of take on aspects of what it is that they're worshipping. Um, he talks about the worship of money, And in cultures where that takes place, how greedy and oppressive and materialistic we become. You see, these things shape us. They mold us. We start to bear their image. Uh, Worship academia. And uh, the danger is we'll take on the values and the priorities of that. The danger is to become um, arrogant, condescending, conceited. By losing sight of and satisfaction in God's glory, you see, it is very easy to be captured by lesser glories. And so reflect lesser glories, to become less than the people we were created to be. Well, what is God's response to all of this? God wants to restore us. He wants to glorify us again, to become the people we were created to be. He wants, in other words, to renew his glorious image in us. How is he going to do that? Well, one of the ways, the first uh, way that he does it, we have, we have just celebrated at Christmas. See, he has to give us sight of himself in a way that sinful humanity can see. He has to give us sight of himself in a way that sinful humanity can see and also in a way that sinful humanity can delight in and savor, and be satisfied by, and be enthralled by, such that all the lesser glories that capture us are displaced. How does he do it? Well, he comes. Uh, Divine glory enfleshed. Divine glory enfleshed in the gift of his Son. Very famous word. You'll have heard it read several times over Christmas. John 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen what? His glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. God sends his Son, Jesus, who displays in his life and in his death the glory of God and what it looks like to image God perfectly as a human. So he displays not only the glory of God, but the glory of a human who is perfectly worshiping God. 
He shows us in his human nature what a perfectly restored human, the beauty of a perfectly restored human, what that looks like. His life and his death enthralls us, not only with a vision of God, but with a vision of what, what God can and will um, and would and will make of us if we put ourselves in his hands. But the point is, of course, to win our hearts, we need to see Jesus truly. And so God gives not only his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live and die for us, to give us a a, a true sense, a true uh, image of God's glory, but he also in Pentecost sends his Holy Spirit upon the church. Holy Spirit is vital. His role is to unveil our eyes and hearts so that when we see glory in the Lord Jesus Christ, no, let me put it another way around, because we don't. So that when we pass the Lord Jesus Christ in the street, as it were, when we're reading the Scriptures, when we're hearing the Scriptures read, when we're, or whatever it might be, suddenly this man in whom the glory of God is displayed, but we would not take note of naturally, because naturally our hearts and eyes are veiled, the Holy Spirit lifts the veil, and suddenly we see the glory of Christ. We see the glory of the Lord in him. Suddenly, who he is and what he does is glorious in our eyes. And not only is it glorious in our eyes, but the Holy Spirit changes our appetites, gives us a spiritual appetite that says, you know what, actually, you know, this, is, this is the one who can satisfy me. Not, not this thing over here, not this celebrity culture or money or academia or whatever it might be. You know what, as I look at this man, as I look at his life, as I look at his death, he's... This is what I need. This is who I need. This is glory. This, and only this, can satisfy me. And in this way, we can be renewed in his image. Because as the glory of God is reflected in the person and work of Christ, as it satisfies us, as it delights us, well, so it begins to relegate other lesser glories that are competing for our affections. As our hearts are captured by him, so we want to be like him. We want to imitate him and thereby begin to become again the glorious image bearers of God that we were created to to be. We begin to be renewed in his image. Why become like the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, because we were created to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is glorious, glorious reflectors of the glorious image of God. Psalmist says this, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. I don't think he's saying, take delight in the Lord and once you've done that, He will give you the desires of your heart. Be that a Ferrari, be that a, you know, don't think he's saying that, is he? The two go hand in hand. He's saying, take delight in the Lord, see him as glorious, savor his glory in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, recognize him to be your all in all, want to be like him, want to reflect that glory, and God will give you the desires of your heart. The Spirit will will work in you to to, to accomplish that. Make that your desire, and the Spirit will honor that. I think that's what he's saying. 
So how are we transformed into the glorious likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, we've, we've touched on it, really, but let's bring it together. It is through, as one person once re- uh, said, and I always thought this was very helpful, it's through the natural and the supernatural reading of the Bible, which are not two separate things, as we'll see, but they're one thing. <laughs> but you need to have both in your minds. <laughs> through the natural and the supernatural reading of the Bible um, is one of the key ways. Naturally, Naturally, it's by reading the Bible, because when we read the Bible, we see the glory of God portrayed, and particularly we see, as we look for Christ on every page, as it were, how it all points to Christ, how it's fulfilled in Christ, we, the Bible preaches Christ to us, which is how we see Christ now, I take it. But it's always a supernatural activity, because the Spirit is always willing to be at work, opening our eyes to see that glory, as we read that particular passage of Scripture that we're reading, to see the glory of God in it to see how Christ embodies and fulfills that, that glory. And the Spirit is at work wanting to open our hearts too, to not only see it, but to savor it. Oh, what a special thing that is. What a wonderful, bit of, what a, what a wonderful character that I've seen there and that Jesus embodies. What a wonderful promise. Isn't that a glorious promise? What a beautiful command. What a glory. To, to not only see it, but to savor it, to satisfy it, to say, yes, that's what I want. That would satisfy me. That, that would bring rest. That would bring life in all its fullness. And as one person put it, where the Word informs our desires, the Spirit empowers them. Where the Word informs our desires, the Spirit empowers them. That's the promise. That as we come to the Scriptures, we see the glory of the Lord, and the Spirit unveils our eyes, and uh, we savor the Lord Jesus Christ, and we want to be like him, and we commit to that, and the Spirit helps us. And so as we behold, back to verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 3, as we behold the Lord's glory, we're transformed into ever-increasing glory. It doesn't always feel like that, does it? Well, maybe it does. If it does, Fantastic. Fantastic. I'm talking to myself, and for those perhaps, sometimes it doesn't always feel like that. And there's several things we can say to that. The first is this 2 Corinthians 3, it's in the present tense. That is to say, there's a sense here in which we're to keep going at it. In other words, it's saying this is a whole life thing. Uh, There's no sense in which verse 18 of verse 3 says, and you'll do that for the first couple of years as a Christian, and then, you know, no, this is a whole of life thing. And won't be perfected until we see Christ face to face. Then we'll see his glory unmediated. And we're to use the means that God gives us. And I know a little bit later on we're going to be preaching about the importance of community. And one of the things about community is that it helps us to see the glory of Christ when we're struggling to see it. Um, But we'll develop that much more in 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 a week or two. And one of the things we're to do is to trust, you know, that his word and work works um, even when we feel stale or less than glorious. Because you know that we're, we're, we're physical creatures and we know that our emotions play a huge part in how we respond to things and how we feel. And those aren't always a true indicator of what's going on. I came across this quote. Um, I, was, I, was, um, I couldn't remember who said it, but I've always found it very, very helpful. Do you know this quote? It's by Ralph Emerson, Ralph, Ralph Waldo Emerson. I cannot remember the books I've read any more than the meals I have eaten. Even so, they have made me. Can I say that again? I cannot remember the books I've read any more than the meals I've eaten. Even so, they have made me. I can't remember what I ate last week. Um, And not every meal I have is glorious. Um, 
Uh, you know, one has to say that. Um, and I can say that you know, because my wife's not here. Um, and, uh, and, I, and I make most of you know, um, but, um, but nevertheless, you know, the point is, isn't it, if you eat a meal that is, and it doesn't feel particularly glorious, or for whatever reason, it's not a really good um, meal, that's not the case when we're reading the Bible, but um, it's always a good meal. But, you know, we don't feel it for whatever reason. The point is the body takes what it needs. Unknown to us, it goes in, the body breaks it down, takes what it needs. I take it that happens as we uh, read the scriptures, whether it feels particularly glorious or not. But knowing that the Bible is meant to be transformative, the question becomes how do we approach it to give it the best opportunity to do us most good. Okay, slightly torturous sentence, but you know what I mean. How do we approach it to give the Scriptures the best opportunity to do us the most good? How do we read it, in other words, so that we see Jesus truly, uh, we, see him as, we see the glory of God in him, uh, we truly believe him to be our satisfier in a way that profoundly shapes us? And the first thing to say there, of course, is we pray as we come to the Scriptures. Now, I know we're going to talk about prayer as well, so I'm not going to um, say much on that. But just come back to verse 18 with me in, in, in 2 Corinthians 3. Come back to the Scriptures. Do you, do you notice it's in the passive tense. Uh, we uh, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed. So it's, it's in the passive tense, which is to say that that God, by His Spirit, takes the lead in our transformation. We're entirely reliant on him. That doesn't make us passive. Quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. If we have a God-given desire to be transformed by what we are seeing in Scripture, then God will fulfill that desire as we've seen. So we want to approach it to see God's glory, to to savor it so that we're transformed. And as we do that we will find that we are being transformed by the Holy Spirit. But it is a spiritual work, and the Spirit takes the initiative, so we've got to be those who pray. Open our eyes to see the Lord's glory. Open our eyes to savor it, to know it to be the thing that satisfies us. But secondly, and we're going to spend just the last five minutes. Secondly, I think one of the things that I've um, been thinking about as I, as I approach this, and I've, I've done a little bit of reading on, and I really want to commit to this year, and I lay it before you too, is this idea of meditation. Meditation on God's Word. Meditation can get a bad press in some circles because it can immediately make us think of um, other forms of meditation that aren't Christian that are not particularly helpful. But the first thing to say is that meditation is a, is, is a Bible word. It occurs lots of times in the Bible. It's a key word in the Scripture. Uh, the Psalm 1 says that it's the key to our transformation. Psalm 1 says this, uh, their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law they meditate day and night. And it says when you do that, you become like a tree planted by a stream of water, fruitful. The point about meditation in the Bible uh, is that it's not about emptying your mind to commune with God. It is about filling your mind with his word. Such, in such a way, and here's the point, in such a way that understanding moves to transformation. So it is more than Bible study. Tim Keller talks about it being sort of the midway point between Bible study and prayer. And I'm not quite sure what that means, but I think I like it. Um, you'll see what I mean as I go through. It's sort of between Bible study and prayer. It's, it's filling, your, filling your mind with God's Word in such a way that you, you're wanting to move um, from understanding to transformation. 
The Hebrew words for meditation speak about, um, have, have the sense, one of them has a sense of sort of speaking it to yourself in a low voice, chewing over it. Another one has the sense of mulling it over. Uh, I used to teach science for a bit. I'm sure you've all done this experiment. Um, you know, you, you pop a piece of bread in your mouth and swallow it, and it doesn't particularly taste of much. But if you put a piece of bread in your mouth and you leave it in your mouth for a bit and you chew it for a uh, reasonably extended period of time, what happens? Looking at Dr. Paul Fairchild over there. It turns sweet. I'll get you off the hook. It turns sweet, and you can, you can sense that because it takes time for the... Well, we won't go into it. But anyway, the starch to be broken down to sugars. But the point is, it needs to stay in the mouth for a little bit for it to turn sweet. And that is exactly the point with the scriptures. They need to stay in our mind a little bit before we'll taste them as sweet. Thomas Brooks, who was a Puritan, uh, put it like this. He said, remember, it's not hasty reading, but serious meditating upon holy and heavenly truths that make them prove sweet and profitable to the soul. It's not the bee's touching of the flower which gathers honey, but her abiding for a time upon the flower which draws out the sweet. It's not he who reads most, but he who meditates most, who will prove the choicest, sweetest, and wisest Christian. It's about dwelling. And that's hard for all of us, because life is so fast, particularly, well, particularly in Oxford, it seems to be everywhere, but it is, it is true here, isn't it? Life is so fast. And the danger is that the word runs through our minds like water through a pipe, you know, just, just, just gushes through so quickly that we don't have time to draw out the sweet, to use Thomas Brooks's term. So how do we begin to meditate like this? I'm absolutely no expert, but as I've read a little bit about it, I, I just leave you with a few things um, and say that I want to commit myself to this, because I've said this before, but it's still true, and so you can hold me accountable to this. I still find that far too often I'm not reading the scriptures for transformation in particular. Um, primarily, I find myself reading them because I know I'm about to teach something. Um, or I'm reading it because of, you know, whatever it might be. I want to you know, read this bit of a psalm. Or, or Not often enough do I read it with that sense of the key thing here is that I am transformed by this particular word. So the first thing I want to say is this. Psalm 119 says this, make me understand the way of your precepts and I will meditate on your wondrous works. Now that's really important. Make me understand the way of your precepts and I will meditate on your wondrous works. It reminds us that understanding is crucial. So you don't go to meditation straight away. First you understand. That's one of the issues I have and I'm, I, I, I'm loath to say this well, that's why I won't. There are some forms of reading the Bible slowly that, in a sense, jump straight to meditation on a particular word that jumps out at you or a particular sentence that jumps out of you but hasn't done the work of saying, yes, but what does that actually mean? And there you've got to therefore do a, the Bible study bit, if you like, before moving to meditation because the whole point about meditation is you're meditating on the truth, not whatever happens to jump out at me. Okay, I'm meditating on what God is actually saying there. That's what I want to fill my mind with and dwell on. So I want to understand. But I want to move from understanding to meditation, from information to transformation. And that happens as we dwell. That happens as we dwell. D dwell on it. 
so the Spirit can flood our hearts and minds and souls with the truth. And um, how do we do that? So we do the work of asking ourselves, what does this um, text mean? Um, what truth about God, about his character, am I discerning here? Or about a command that he's giving? Or about a, a, a promise to trust? And then I want to move to transformation. So I want to dwell on that. I want to dwell on that. And one of the ways you can do that, there are all sorts of questions. Um, I've got a few, but I think we haven't got enough time to put them up. But if you're interested, I can, I can um, attach them or something to the podcast. But the sort of questions I think, one of the key questions is this for me, as I, as I meditate on something like this, an aspect of God's character. How did Jesus embody that? How did Jesus embody that? What does it look like to do that? Uh, to do that perfectly? Well, what difference did it make in, in, the, in the exchanges that Jesus had when he, when he lived out that particular character? How, did, how were people affected by him when he lived out that particular uh, character? Um, what does it look like for the world not to embody that character? That's another way of coming at it, isn't it? What does it look like for the world not to, to embody that character in the way that Jesus uh, did? How would my life change if I really embodied that, if I took that truth seriously? How would my, and, and there again, as we dwell on it, we're, we're not just thinking my life generally. How would my, and we name it, how would my relationship with X change? How would my relationship with this person at work change? How would my relationship with my family, my children, whatever it might be, change? How would my relationship with myself change, my emotional life, my whatever it might be, if I took this seriously, if this truth was fully alive in my being? So what, what do I need God to help me with? What, 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 what am I seeking? What, what, what can he... What, what, what petition must I make here? How is Jesus and his grace, how does that, and the gospel, how does it free me to begin to live like that? Which is another way of saying, what's stopping me living like that? And how does the gospel address that? What's stopping me living like that, believing that, trusting that, doing that, whatever it might be? How does the gospel of grace, how does Jesus, as he meets me in the scriptures, Empower me to believe that, trust that, do that, whatever it might be. I came across this question, which I thought was very helpful. Why might God be showing this to me now? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Why might God be showing this thing to me now, this promise or this character of his or this whatever it might be? What's going on in my life? Um, I was, thank you. Um, that he might be bringing this to my attention today. And then, of course, we pray. Because when we pray things, we own them. We are transformed into the likeness of who or what we treasure. One commentator said this on 2 Corinthians 3, In beholding the true glory of the Lord reflected in Jesus Christ, our minds become transformed so that we're not conformed to this world and its perceptions and values but to Christ. So let this always be our prayer uh, as we open the pages of Scripture in 2019. Um, 
Let our prayer be, Father, let's, let us see your glory, particularly as it's embodied and fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in beholding that glory, may we savor it, may we desire it, may we see how it satisfies us, such that it displaces lesser glory, so that we want to become like him and be transformed into his glory which is, of course, the road to human flourishing. Amen.